Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. <laughs> I'm either you or Mr. Ed. <laughs> that's we are... just a, a joke that became a thing, and I now know. I just keep doing it. That's how jokes start. They yeah. start as things. Well, uh, we have a new episode this week. Yes, we do. But first... First. Shout out to our new Patreon supporter. Shout out! Layla Kurtzky? Layla, or it could be Leala. Leala? L-E-A-L-A. Either way, thank you very Layla. much. Layla. And if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. Thank you for your gift. <laughs> Layla. Layla. That's a good song. It is a good song, and it's a good gift. And uh, secondly, we have a conference coming up in November. Yes, we do. So for all of our priests and deacons, uh, listeners especially, but if you're interested as well, we have a preaching conference every year. So this year it is going to be on Christ the Cornerstone by Dr. Stephen Smith. Who is a very interesting biblical scholar, just published a book called House of the Lord uh, about the temple. So the temple themes in the New Testament, I think, will be what we'll be focusing on. Absolutely. So that's on November 9th. If you want to register, you can go to liturgicalinstitute.org slash conferences, and you can register there. It's going to be an amazing day, an amazing conference. And this week, we're talking about documents from Vatican II. Well, the A first document of Vatican II, <laughs> Sacrosanctum Concilium. The document. Yeah, so we've gone, we've talked about this document before, but we're taking a walk through step by step. So. Right, so we got through chapters one through four. Who, th- who would have thought we could make a whole podcast out of four <laughs> little chapters? <laughs> how long? How Too far many jokes you, from you, Jesse. How far did you think we were going to get? In- I didn't know, but there's so much theology packed in every sentence of that document that needs mm-hmm. to be teased out that we're going to try to get through the whole thing eventually. Well... Parts one through four of Sacrosanctum Concilium. So, without further ado, episode six of season three of The Liturgy, the Liturgy Guys. Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The Liturgy is what enculturates the Gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day to day life, our, our day to day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. You know children that listen I to do. This? All right. Your children listen to this? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what would be good is if like your kid does something wrong and you're like, that's it. Five episodes of the liturgy, guys. No. That's your punishment. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. Boy, if I would have known that was a punishment, I wouldn't have done it in the first place. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> How do you like your conchiliums? Do you like them sacrosanct or <laughs> over easy with a side of hash browns? Mm. How do you like your eggs, Benedict? Oh mm, man! Mm, mm, is there a comma mm. there? Or not? That's where a comma makes all the difference. <laughs> How do you like your eggs, Benedict? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Sacrosanctum Concilium. What about it? That's what we're here to talk about. <laughs> yes. We have mentioned it briefly many times, and I mm-hmm. think long ago we did a quiz about what it actually said versus it didn't say. But I don't think we've ever actually walked through the document. It's long, so we can't walk through everything. But I thought. Let's begin at the beginning, and um, you can share your brilliance. And mm-hmm. we're probably not going to get through all of it, but not in this Oh, no, 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 we will. Oh, 130 in, paragraphs. Not in this podcast. Not in this episode, however. Oh, yeah. We can return to it a little bit later. You know, we had the um, Young Adult Liturgy Conference last spring. A what? Young I've Adult Liturgy of, Conference. I've never heard of such a thing. Figured. And 
I'm doing this thing about the liturgical movement, and I'm just throwing out, and this is how, this is all that, what led to Vatican II, and this is all what led to Vatican II, and then somebody participant at the end said, uh, "What's Vatican II?" It's like, oh, maybe I should have said that at the beginning, because you know most people we we're in the liturgy field, right? So we talk about Vatican II all the time, but I don't know that anybody thinks, oh, the Second Vatican Council. Like I know that. Like all the other councils, do I know what they said? And Trend. Well, see, uh, you've heard Kevin say this before, right? That uh, of course he lived before the Second Vatican Council. He's been through a couple councils, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but he says he was talking about seminarians today. He said, you know, you say Vatican II, and you may as well be talking about the Council of Trent because it's all it's all history to them. It they is. don't remember it's any sixty before. years ago, right? So you yeah, have so to be pretty old yeah. to remember it. Yeah, yeah, at least sixty-five. Or seasoned, I, I say. Yeah. Yes. Seasoned. So you're right. It's. Um, Kind of the, if you want to know what it says, the the so-called spirit of the the council is something that you can't tap into anymore. You actually have to go to the text. Right. So the text of the council is what's normative, and the spirit is different interpretations of it. So knowing what it actually says is rather important. I'd John say. Paul said that the the uh, council documents are the compass uh, with which the church will take her bearings in the third Christian millennium. Wait, I, sorry. Wait, what, what is the spirit? of Vatican II. It's kind of a... Uh, I, hear the, I hear it joked a lot about. Yeah. And I think I get the joke, but like maybe It's not I really don't. a joke. It's actually kind of well, a Well, when thing. I see it, it's a joke. Right. Yeah, there's a good, uh, uh, a good address from December 22nd, 2005 that uh, Pope Benedict, it was his first address to the Roman Curia, his Christmas greetings. This is this famous um, hermeneutic of disruption. Of rupture. Of rupture. And hermeneutic of reform, of reform and renewal, right. that uh, where he talks about the, these two different things. One is this uh, so-called spirit of the council, which he says in this uh, address to the Curia was uh, the result of compromises in the text. That to get you know the he had to compromise to get the text to say a certain thing, but the spirit in the air that was uh, surrounding the council was really something different, and and it was sort of reduced from the text, removed from the text, which in turn was sort of removed from the tradition it it it, and it risks so they were Benedict said in a in a um a chasm between the preconciliar and the postconciliar church like they're two different things that's the spirit of the second Vatican so it's like it doesn't explicitly say this but like this is what it means so this is what, this we're is what they do. meant to say right, right. yeah <laughs> now we couldn't actually say what we wanted to say so because those this, pesky conservatives were is in this the way. like mansplaining we're here like <laughs> I, we know, we know what, but let me just say, this is what you wanted to say. Yes. Well, All right. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the council documents, it says Latin is the normative language of the Latin church, chant gets right of place, you know, all the things we conveniently ignore. And then suddenly those disappear. Right. And so the spirit was, well, the, what basically what he says is that the impulses toward the new were present at the time of the council, but there were also impulses to preserve tradition. But the impulses toward the new were seen as having been squashed and therefore they had to go forward beyond what the text actually said. And so the spirit of the council was a way of saying, well, it's what I wish the council would have said, which of course is impossible to do because everybody would have a different interpretation of what they wished it would have said. And then it get, he said it gave an opening for every possible So you could say whim. like the spirit of the U.S. Constitution. Well, well right. that's, why you, have, that's yeah. why you have a Supreme Court to determine what right. that Well, and you have, some, you have judicial philosophies about their relationship to the Constitution as right, well exactly. that, that kind of break along those same lines. So too. a normative document only takes you so far, and how that document is interpreted is, is kind of an important thing. Okay, sorry. I, but you can't interpret yeah. it if you don't know the document, right? So people will say, oh, Vatican II said we should take down altar rails. And I'm like, tell me where. 
right? Mm-hmm. Or Vatican II says we had to paint the church base. Like, no, it didn't. Some people say Vatican II said, and it almost never does say what they say it said. Yeah. And of course, John Paul was there as a, at the Second Vatican Council as a bishop, and Pope Benedict was there as, a, as an expert. But even, you know, today, um, someone like Cardinal Seurat will talk about, you know, reading and implementing Sumorum Pontificum in light of Sacrosanctum Concilium. Mm-hmm. Pope Francis himself will talk about uh, more remains to be done to uh, to form con- uh, liturgical consciences uh, according to the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. So it's it's an ongoing thing to to keep returning to the Constitution, finding out what it said and why it said it and how it's applied today. And what we've said millions of times, and I never get tired of this, is this whole notion of you know the Mass is a sacrifice of Christ. And they were very interested that the people realized they were members and they sacrificed themselves. This is the great insight of Vatican II. So they don't want to see that go away. So constantly go back to the good, true things that are contained in the document and then see whether we're doing it or not. And well, let's the, do it. Well, what, what, yeah. you want to begin in the beginning? What would you think most people would say Vatican II was about? Vatican II brought us what? Active participation in okay. the liturgy. They might know those words, but if they don't, like just practically speaking. Uh, Priest-facing the people. Priest-facing the people. English language. English or vernacular, right. rather. Right, vernacular. Updated, right, so that so that we can be involved more. Right. Laity and liturgical that. roles. Mm-hmm. Sort of the angry people who don't like Vatican II will blame it for all kinds of bad things. The people who love it will sort of say stuff that it maybe didn't say. Um, but that's not really what the council document's about. The very first paragraph says it this way. It has two aims in view, or several aims in view, and to uh, impart an ever-increasing vigor in the Christian life of the faithful. So that's Vigorous Christian life. It wants to make Christians come to life and live uh, the Christian life with great exuberance so and vigor. That's number one. The second one, to adapt more suitably to the needs of our own times, those institutions which are subject to change, right? So some things aren't. But the idea was that the church kind of, like an ostrich, kind of stuck its head in the sand after the French Revolution and after all the anti-church legislation, and they went into the fortress mentality of, this is what we believe, this is what we believe, oh, we're not going to talk to you, you're the heretic unless you believe it. Well, it wasn't convincing people, so there was some notion that it froze and needed to become kind of, uh, not melted, but how would you say, like supple again, mm-hmm. uh, able to bend. Re- refined? Yeah, I think that's a good one to read with the next, the third aim that the council has. To foster whatever can promote union among all who believe in Christ. So there's a big answer to the Reformation and also to the divisions between the Eastern and Western churches. Yeah, well, it seems like, the so those two together, I mean, there, there's a sense of uh, cohesion and integrity and unity that the church has and desires to maintain, and in fact, make even stronger, while at the same time, those things that can be adapted, uh, changed, uh, those can be too, but it's not um, it's not at the expense of unity, nor is unity at the expense of adaptability. Exactly. So there's always that balance. You know, what do you keep? What do you change? What is unchangeable? What is changeable? Those are the things that they have to decide. But these principles are pretty broad. The last one of those is to strengthen whatever can help call to call the whole of mankind into the household of the church. So that's a big mission, right? All of humanity has to be brought into the church. And uh, those were the goals. What, is, uh, what does ecclesia mean? 
call, called out, or called yeah, ex- call out, yeah, to call out. So the first ecclesia was the the chosen people at the base of Mount Sinai. God had called them out and called them together so that they could hear what He was going to proclaim. So ecclesia means literally to call out. So this last one to to strengthen the call, whatever can help call the whole community of mankind into the church. So those are the goals that it said that that council's about. Yeah. Sorry to keep interrupting you, but I think this is great, right? So if you're going to comment on uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, I think the first place would be, what are the four goals that the council had in mind? And have they been shown to have happened, right? Increasing vigor in the Christian life of the faithful? Maybe for some, adapt more suitably to the needs of our own times. There's been a lot of adaptation right. for maybe not all of it. Then Promote union between those who believe in Christ? Perhaps. I mean, certainly, I think the Scott Hans of the world may not have ever become Catholic had they not stopped in a mass accidentally being, you know, sprayed in their own language. For, for you listeners at home, Scott Hahn is a famous person. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and uh, to strengthen what can call the whole of mankind and the household of the church, well, with people falling away from worship, I don't know that uh, we can say that fruit has been found yet. But um, but who knows? People often say, well, if the church hadn't made the reforms it did make, then maybe there'd be even fewer people in church, although in Europe it's hard to imagine any fewer people in the church. So maybe this doesn't need to be said, but sacrosanctum... Then don't say it. I said maybe it doesn't. What does sacrosanctum concilium mean? Um, The council of... Okay, it does need to be said. It means this sacred council. So the the document, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, is like all documents, they take their name from the first two Latin words, sacrosanctum concilium. So this is how this paragraph begins. This sacred council, sacrosanctum concilium, uh, uh, has has several aims in view, and then it lists these four things. And so the terms sacrosanctum concilium in themselves have nothing to do, and they refer oh, in no the, way with the liturgy oh, at all. It's just the beginning of the document. It's mm-hmm. just the beginning of oh. the document. Okay. But So that's where it gets its gets But its with name. all those four goals, yeah, okay, great. How are we going to do that? It says, therefore, this council sees cogent reasons for undertaking the reform and promotion of the liturgy. So you see the liturgy is the answer to these many things. It has to be reformed so that the graces available in the liturgy can flow more effectively, and then would eventually you know, bring that grace of God to the world and bring all Christians and all humanity back together in union. The liturgy can serve to unite the church. The liturgy can strengthen the call of the church. Uh, the liturgy adds vigor to Christian life uh, in, in a way that other aspects of the church cannot. So because the council wants to do these things, we're going to start with the liturgy. But why else did they start with the liturgy from a more practical standpoint? You know the answer to this. I do. Because the liturgical movement had already right. been going on for so long, they exactly. had most of the answers they yeah, needed. because they've been working on this document for about a century, really, yeah. uh, before they actually put pen to paper. And so the liturgical movement are kind of the, uh, the footnotes to, I mean, the, the things that you find in the Constitution, you can draw back to Virgil Michael and Pius X and Pius XII and uh, Don Prosper Garaget and Lambert Baldwin and all of these people. So, I, you know, we're going to start with that because we've been working on this for about a century. Right. So right in the paragraph two, it says uh, the liturgy through which the work of our redemption is accomplished. Now, that's a funny thing. Maybe if you take it out by itself, well, how is the work of our redemption accomplished through the liturgy? It already seems like it was done, right? Christ died on the cross, rose again, went back to the Father. He promised to you know, take us there someday. It seems like it's been accomplished. Why is it still being accomplished, Chris? 
Uh, why don't you ask Jesse this one? Uh, <laughs> I think we talked about be, this yeah, a few episodes It's still being ago. accomplished because um, the Trinity is waiting for us to do our part in fulfilling it. Uh, it's been completed, but it's not, the church isn't at its her full maturation. It's not fully consummated. We're just waiting for the three of us and others to get our acts right. in gear. And everybody will be born after us until the end of time, right? So the the application of the redemption is is being accomplished. It doesn't, that's not a bad thing. It means it's actually happening, but it's through the liturgy, the work of our redemption is being accomplished. It's a funny thing. Whose work is it primarily? Well, it's ours to a degree because we're there doing it, but it's primarily... Jesus. Christ's work. He is the prime minister of... <laughs> offering himself to the liturgy. Father and offering us too. Uh, the, I'm looking at the footnote here. That's... Um, through, the, through which the work of our redemption is accomplished. Do you see the footnotes there? We have a little bit different one. This is yeah. from the what we would call the prayer over the offerings for the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. So they're running off a little different liturgical calendar than we would today. But I mean, the, the source of her language is, is her prayer. And there, in other places, we'll talk about the law of belief and the law of prayer and how they kind of go hand in glove and they re- reinforce each other. Uh, that the source of... Uh, these council documents is our liturgical texts uh, very often. Yeah, so the documents that you were asking, Chris, about the Eucharist is the sort of sublime way that Christ's work of redemption is, is done. But other places it is as well. Why is it the most efficacious? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, well, well, I'm asking why does the church say, first of all, where are these other places and why is the Eucharist the the most, uh, what does it say, most of all where that well, that's the, full, that's the fullness of Christ's action, right? And the Eucharist itself is distinguished from all other presences of Christ. And it says par excellence, I think, later mm-hmm. in the document. And you use the word substantial? Yeah, well, yeah. well this is the, the, the term the church opponent. It's true, real, and substantial. The, the, not just the presence, but the saving work is present in a way, in a most excellent way. Like more than him just performing miracles or healing people and all that stuff. Well, no, I mean, the Paschal Mystery of Christ is the substance of everything liturgical, whether it's the Eucharist or, you know, blessing of a new automobile or Liturgy of the Hours or something. <laughs> but uh, it's present in a most excellent, substantial, and abiding way in the Eucharist, which is different. We would That same Paschal Mystery is not present in that same way in a blessing or the Liturgy of the Hours or the Rite of Funerals or something. So you like might that. have a picture of your Aunt Martha. And in a certain way, she's present to you because you see a picture and you think of her. But you, you have Aunt Martha with you. She's present with you in a better way than a picture or a letter or some other way of letting herself be known to you. And so the Eucharist has this supreme kind of top of the heap. In yeah, Christ fullness. Yeah, yeah, fullness and efficaciousness. So, um, but it says that, that the Eucharist is the outstanding means by where the faithful express in their lives and manifest to others the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the true church. So both human and divine, which is good, right? It's not just a human act. We go and have our little holy uh, lesson class, read scripture and talk about it, sing a song, go home. But the divine realities are made visible and present uh, through all of this earthly so far this all sounds great sounds like i know (laughs) this is only the we're only halfway through the second paragraph of vatican (laughs) two i've hardly gotten through it at all and i don't see anything that says that we need to have guitars and dancing and any of that right see that's the question about is that is that later in the document it is uh much much later oh okay than the document (laughs) (laughs) there are you know, there's a document, and then it's how it's received. So the culture was not really ready for humanevite, they say, at the time, and still isn't in many ways. 
if just because the document's not received well doesn't mean there's a problem with the document. So it's uh, there's always that um, distinction you have to keep in mind. So the council says the following principles should be kept in mind and they apply to the Roman right. Now, we did we go through these principles in one of the other podcasts a long time ago, Chris? How many principles are there? Um, I don't know, 10, something like that. We'll find out. Yeah, if we don't have enough time in this one, we did did do like the quintessential principles, we went through them. But so, the the this is all the introduction before chapter one, but it's funny phrases like this. You might say, if you didn't know Vatican II, you might say, Well, Vatican II said we should change a bunch of things, we're updating, we're opening ourselves to the winds of the world. But actually, what it says is in paragraph four in faithful obedience to tradition, sacred council declares that Holy Mother Church holds all lawfully acknowledged rights to be of equal right and dignity. In other words, the Eastern rites are of equal dignity. And there's a history to that because the Roman church was often trying to impress Roman ritual methods onto the Eastern churches and not let them have their own identity. And uh, the council also desires the rites be revised carefully in the light of sound tradition and that they be given new vigor to meet the circumstances and needs of modern times. So that's the big principle at work there yeah well number four what you just read uh revised in light of tradition new vigor modern times that's a restatement basically of the sacred council has four aims in view right but that, but to, to me that things. doesn't mean how do we change everything to adapt to the culture but how do we get the how do we get the culture to understand better what the tradition of the liturgy is right and this is when Pope Benedict talked about the great the church was liturgy was like a great mural that had been covered in whitewash over the years and you couldn't see it anymore because the whitewash was semi-opaque or only semi-transparent. It protected it. Protected it from abuse. But it didn't let it shine out so we could benefit from it. Right. So think of the Sistine Chapel before they cleaned all the layers of grime and varnish off. It had all these kind of, it had a deep, rich kind of, I don't know, amber tone to everything. But it seemed to be like dull and uninteresting, kind of murky. And when they cleaned it off, people were like, wow, look at those bright colors. There's this new vigor that it seemed to have, even though the same thing was there before. And they didn't, you know, paint it with neon streaks of uh, spray paint to make it new. They just found out what it was in its original vigor and brought it back. And I think that's one of the ways you can talk about the how the intention for the council was for the liturgy. Jesse, on that point, uh, if we go back to paragraph two, listen to what it says. The When, when, when the church celebrates the liturgy well, it says this, it is of the essence of the church that she be both human and divine, visible and yet invisibly equipped, eager to act and yet intent on contemplation, present in this world and yet not at home in it. Okay, so what does that sound like? Jesus. Yes, and also human, divine, visible and invisible, in the world and of heaven. It sounds to me like a sacrament. A sacrament, right? right Isn't right. a sacrament mm-hmm. all of these things? Yeah. Ooh, sacrament. The church yeah. is the sacrament of Christ. But it continues. Um, she is all these things in such a way that in her the human is directed and subordinated to the divine the visible to the invisible action to contemplation and the present world to the city yet to come so Jesse as you said I mean I didn't see anything in there about you know the church adapting everything (laughs) to the modern world quite the contrary even though it is both of these things a uh, divine and a human thing their relationship is such that the adaptation that might take place is all to get the city of Madison, in this case, to look like the city of Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the terminus of this direction is ad- adapting, but for the sake of transforming and divinizing the things of earth. So the principal motion in the end is always towards God. Right, the outward flow of divinizing grace to the world. 
not so much letting the world in the church so the church who's feeling kind of insecure can feel like oh we're relevant because we're hanging out with the cool artists of you know soho it's how can the cool artists of soho who have gifts and talents be brought into the mind and efforts and mission of the church and so that's kind of how we see it and if there's anything we have to do you can't walk to up to an artist in southern Manhattan start speaking Latin and expect that they care right but if you speak to them in language they understand but if you go up and you say the Lord be with you he might say and with your spirit <laughs> well right exactly so or and they, also with you <laughs> they thought the vernacular for instance would be one of these ways if people understood more what they were doing and the world understood what they were doing then maybe the world would be brought into the fold of the church as well so of course there's lots of discussion about sure and I, I think that. we'll come back to dive into this a little more but I think it's worth noting that there's some really legitimate and and beautiful intentions here, and I and I think uh, sometimes, like you said, uh, you alluded to earlier in the podcast, uh, people have their own opinions of, of what it said and what they were trying to do here. But read it. But read it. Yeah. It's not that hard to read. It's very straightforward English. And if you're and if you're listening to this, read it because we are going to come back to this in future. Because we got through paragraph four, yeah. four, 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 hundred and twenty-six <laughs> to go. Yeah, we can do it. Yeah, but. Um, it's, so is it's, that your homework? That's the homework. Yeah. Well, yeah. Read it. Read it. You can, and then link, you can link to this, right? You can link. Read to the this first four paragraphs and all the other stuff that we got going on too. So, oh, hey, Chris, hey. Oh, Jesse, you don't know this, but we have a Patreon account now, and uh, we have we have people supporting us in amazing ways. Uh, uh, supporting that amazes the me, by the way, for yeah. Patreon supporters. I would probably never support a podcast because I'm selfish like that. But someone who is doing that for us. And by the way, we should say this is not just going into some general weirdo fund. Like this is to keep the, <laughs> keep the podcast going. Hey, we just got a donation for 50 bucks. Put it in the weirdo fund. <laughs> <laughs> this goes directly to however, whatever part of this podcast, you know, Jesse's salary is required and the technology involved and all that. So it's, it is actually supporting this podcast. Yeah. So thank you for, for helping us out. Uh, those of you who are doing so. And if you're not, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm just amazed at how many of you are, are actively involved in, in what we're trying to do here. And, and we love all of the pa- fan comments and everything. So, um, But we do want to keep going through this document because it's been on our back burner for a while to just really take a deep, deep dive through this document, this quintessential document, um, to, to kind of go, go through it. And if you're taking a test on this for some weird reason in theology school uh this is your this will be a study guide it'll be great no so. you're vatican too yeah and support the weirdo fund so uh speaking of weirdos should we answer a question from a listener whoa <laughs> we're the listeners the weirdo i don't know i think i guess we'll find out it's you chris it's, it is yeah it's uh, definitely you meaning to talk to you about that okay yeah. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. 
Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? This question comes from Denise. Denise says, hello, liturgy guys. Hello, Denise. Hello, Denise. Denise says, could you please go over what the liturgy says about praying the Jesus prayer over and over again? I understand that the Orthodox pray it, and I would like to know if Catholics are allowed to pray in this manner. I am having trouble distinguishing between pray without ceasing and don't use vain repetitions. Uh, What counts as vain repetitions? Thanks. Denise. First, what is the Jesus prayer? I don't know. You keep saying it all the time. Like you're always mumbling it under your breath. And well, it's a short kind of uh, invocation of prayer. Usually, like Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, or Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Something like that. A sinner, mercy mm-hmm. on me, a sinner. You say that again and again. Right. Okay. So that's the prayer. What does the liturgy say about it? As far as I know, the uh, Roman Rite liturgy doesn't say anything about it. I think it's more of a private. I guess we Devotion. might call it a devotional prayer yeah. uh, to call to mind. Uh, Christ and your own sinful state uh, throughout the day. So it's a, it's a way to pray constantly, as uh, Denise says. They uh, call that a hesychastic prayer. prayer. I, don't, I don't call it that. <laughs> H-E-S-Y-C-H-A-S-M. Hesychasm or hesychastic. It's part of the contemplative prayer tradition that comes usually out of the Eastern Orthodox churches that um, you pray these words over and over again to sort of keep the front mind part of your mind busy so that you can enter into contemplative union. Oh, it's kind of like Teze or Taze prayer. Yeah, Teze. I yeah. mean, I usually put on the re- rerun of, you know, the liturgy or something oh. when I have to study, <laughs> just to have something in the background. But the idea is it's, you re- uh, what it says here is um, the process of retiring inward by ceasing to register the senses. In other words, if you're kind of keeping your senses busy with this white noise, in a sense, then you can let the inner contemplative part of yourself come forward. Now, if you think, if I say, Jesus, have mercy on me a million times, then I will earn my salvation. That is obviously That's the vain. wrong yeah. way to do it. What if you say it 50 times? Then you're not going to get redeemed. Yeah. Well, so. I, I, what I'm getting at is, is there a similar, I mean, we say the rosary. Right. Right. And we, you know, we say the Hail Mary 50 times and beneath and behind and through those words, we, you know, we meditate on, you know, uh, moments in Christ's life. But is there, you think it's similar to that? Yeah, but I, think, I think it's very similar. I think it, I could think it can be used as a method. And, and I don't know, like if I'm, you know, at the gym, I'll just be like, just to keep my mind going on something mm-hmm. else while I'm distracting, I'll just... I don't. I won't even count. I'll just say Hail Marys. Or if I'm trying to fall asleep, mm-hmm. even when I was a little kid, I couldn't fall asleep. I was scared, or I couldn't fall asleep. Counting lambs of God. Yeah, count one. Um, no, but I just. My mom always said, just pray Hail Marys until you fall asleep, and it always works for me, even to this day. So yeah, if you're worried about something that's keeping you awake, that keeps that part of you busy. Yeah. But part of the Jesus prayer in particular, it isn't just the any old prayer. It's the Jesus prayer. And, you know, the name of Christ is one of these things that's considered especially powerful. Call upon the name of the Lord. So the temple in Jerusalem, the Old Testament temple, was a temple to the name of God. It wasn't just temple of God. It was the temple of the name of God. So the name of God was symbolic with his presence. When you called upon God's presence, then you were healed and rescued and brought closer to him. So this idea of calling on Jesus's name again and again is part of that uh, particular tradition of praying always and uh, calling a prayer of the heart. It's called sometimes so that your heart and deep desires can rise up when your pesky, distracted mind gets kind of put to bed. You've accused me of uh, always talking about the Jesus prayer. I wish that were a true accusation. <laughs> I really don't know that much about. Oh, uh, the I've Jesus heard you prayer. say it a no. few times. 
No, I'm, I'm aware of its use. And uh, so can it be prayed by? Yeah, right? Uh, yeah. I, if there's a reason not to, I don't know what it is. I, I've always heard that it could and should I, be prayed. I've always heard you pray it. So. <laughs> well, you certainly have worse uh, <laughs> thoughts in your mind or words on your lips than Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on you. That's true. So. so repetition can be useful. Vain repetition is thinking I can earn my salvation by doing a lot of stuff. And kind of wanna, like a magical incantation. It's not that. It's and if you want to learn more about repetition in the liturgy, you can listen to our episode called Pete and Repeat, which is amazing. That's a good one. Anyway, uh, Denise, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Or Chris, can they tweet you? No, they, they cannot. Can they snap you? I don't can know they, what that is. Can they hit you up on the gram? Instagram, Snapchat. No. Wow. No? Nope. All right. So don't ever try to reach out to Chris. He, I don't so even think he has an email address. Didn't he send us the same question again and again and again? We would love you more if you repeat your questions many t- every day. That's a good one. Thank I you. like it. All right. Thank, Thank you, you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.